Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Father, thank you, Lord, for this evening to come together and study your word. And as we study these uh, intricate uh, spiritual warfare aspects of Scripture, give us wisdom and knowledge and to understand how to uh, fight this battle, because uh, we're in a big one. And so bless our time, bless our second hour as well as we look at current events and what you're doing in the world. And uh, give us uh, ears to hear and hearts to be open. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, um, let's pick up where we left off uh, last week on uh, understanding the spiritual battle. I think uh, I stopped somewhere by, uh, we're talking about Satan being the deceiver, and how does he deceive? He deceives by hiding truth about certain objects and certain aspects of our lives. And uh, I think um, I think I, I finished by hiding the truth about ourselves. Is that where I left off? Did I address that? Okay. So the next item then is is he'll hide the truth about our relationships. Now, this is a a big section, so um, let me kind of unpack this a little bit. So as you can see, he deceives. So he wants you to be deceived about the relationships you form around your life, starting from when you're a little kid and the friends you play with to the high school kids you hang up, how hang out with, to your adulthood and the people you surround yourself with, and the kind of family members that are sometimes forced upon you and how you deal with them, and then the, the types of Christians you hang out with. And so all of that plays a, pa- a part of how he can deceive you. The key in understanding this is you will be conformed to the types of people you hang out with. That's what happens. Now, good or bad, you, it can go both ways, right? But what Satan tries to do is to get you to start relationships with the wrong types of people. People that will bring you down, not build you up. People that can make you worse in your sin or, or make you get into habits versus someone that will actually give you freedom in Christ and show you the way out of the, uh, the areas that you're stuck in. So... Seems simple, but it's actually not. Because most people can identify bad people, like, hey, that's a bad guy, he robs banks, I don't want to hang out with him. Okay? It's simple, right? That, that's, that's a black and white thing, and most people can pick those things out. What most people can't pick out is they will typically be attracted to people that have the same proclivities or a proclivity in them that, that actually meshes with their proclivity, if that makes sense. So birds, let's start with the first thing. Birds of a feather flock together. So typically, typically, not not always, we tend to hang out with the kinds of people that have the same issues that we do, whether we know that or not. We will surround ourselves with those types of individuals. Now, what we're prone to do is create an echo chamber around us. The people who see reality the, the same way we do, 
who say the same things, think the same things, and we feel comfortable around them. But what's the problem if you surround yourself in an echo chamber with people who have the same proclivities? You never see your own. You never see another point of view. You never have anyone come to you and say, hey, what you're doing is totally wrong. You're totally misperceiving reality. And when that person comes in your, your, your uh, zone, so to speak, that person becomes a threat to you. They might be a truth seeker, uh, sorry, a truth teller, but because of the echo chamber that the person builds around them, that person becomes a threat because that person is, even though he's, he or she is speaking truth, is threatening that reality that the person has made. And so this is one of the things that Satan is very clever around is for you to use your own proclivities to surround yourself with other people that have the same proclivities. Then the other category is to surround yourself with people that have a different proclivity, but the proclivity matches your proclivity. So for instance, I'll give you an example of that. Enablers, or what the psychological world calls codependents, will look for projects in people. They will look for people that are needy and need a massive amount of help that goes beyond their capabilities, but they will take them on as a project to help them. And they'll say, help them. But what it turns into is enable them. They're really not helping. So the person who is an enabler, what is their problem? Their problem is they don't have any value, so they find value in... Uh, being needed by other people. Instead of finding value in who they are in Christ, they find value in needing to be needed. So they're great helpers. They always help people, but they'll look for those projects that are impossible projects. Projects you can't actually fix unless you get professional help or something some type of therapy or whatever. So they'll take on that. But you can see the damage that would cause if an enabler is taking on a project that they can't solve. They probably know that they can't solve, but, but they take it on because it makes them feel good. It gives them value. And the harder the project of the other person, the more value they sense. And then the person becomes a martyr because they're a martyr in trying to help this person. And they want you to feel sorry for them and, oh, well, see, no one else wants to help uh, Joe Blow over here or Sally Tutrees. And so I'm the only one that's come out to her or his rescue. No one else wants to help them. No, that's not the problem. No one can help them. They need professional help. You can't help them. You can pray for them and do that, but you can't, you're not going to be able to navigate them through their problems. And, and so they take too much on. So then they, they hook up with either a very childish, childish adult that is, is just, we call them irresponsibles. They're like Peter Pans. They, they're the boy who never grew up. And they take that kind of person on, even as an adult, because they want to either mother them or father them or, or parent them, okay? Because they need to be needed. So they take, they take irresponsibilities on. Then they'll take addicts on, okay? Behind every addict is an enabler. 
And so uh, when you want to try to break someone out of an addiction, the first thing you have to do is cut the cord off between the enabler and the one that's addicted to something. Somebody's given that person the ability to continue on in their addiction. And there will always be an, an enabler that keeps going and fueling the problem. But the enabler gets value addicts because they're helping them. And, and so it becomes a very vicious cycle. And so, I, I, I guess, so, so there's that proclivity. And I, I guess, let me go back to the first category. As, give me some examples there. In the first category, when your birds of a feather flock together, uh, typically people choose choose people based on their own identity. So if they think that they are no good, valueless, not worth anything, guess the kind of people they will hang out with? The same type. Valueless people, people that feel their value uh, is no good, and they'll hook up together in friendships, relationships, whatever. Okay, so follow me on this. They will then exhibit the same behavior. Okay, so someone that doesn't have any value that deals with rejection issues, uh, the course they take typically is maybe uh, sometimes a destruction course. And so they will hang out with friends that are very destructive in their lifestyle. So like you might have seen teenagers start hanging out with the wrong crowd in high school. And the, the kids they're hanging out with are very destructive. Well, it's because that person feels that that's where their level is. And so, yeah, they get into the drugs and alcohol, and they get into all kinds of crazy stuff um, because that's the group they fit into, and they don't feel like they fill into any other group. But what they don't realize is that's not really them. That's a counterfeit idea, identity that Satan has given them, and it has put them in a destructive path. And, they're, they're, and that echo chamber keeps reinforcing it. So then... How about the other other route? Well, the other route is performance. So they get around a lot of people who perform. And so um, if they're performance-oriented, high achievers, straight A's, they, they get a lot of awards, those people will hang out with other types of people like that. Now, in our society, typically that's praised. And they're like, oh, isn't she great? She's, you know, valedictorian. But you don't understand that the valedictorian has only got the grades because... They're trying to perform to please somebody. They didn't do it just because they wanted to do it. They did it to please somebody. And so behind of that is becomes performance. And then they become high achievers, but they only surround themselves with high achievers. And they can't seem to get out of these groups unless they break out from the truth. And so then what happens is they move into adulthood. And they move into adulthood that then signifies typically what kind of career they're going to choose, what kind of path they're going to take for their family, what kind of path they're going to take for their marriage. So let's take a, an example of an individual that has, that has not been the show, that, that has been deceived about the truth of their relationships. So let's say they've been on a destructive path and they surround themselves with destructive people. Now, if you ask them on a personal basis, do you know that you're, surround, you're surrounded by destructive people? They may, may not know that. Most times they don't see it. 
because it's themselves. It's a mirror image of themselves. So guess what the destructive will do when they marry? Marry a destructive person. Now, you'll see it. You'll tell them this, but they won't see it because their proclivities are matching that other person's proclivities. And a lot of times, you know, you'll see people from like good homes, Christian homes, good family background, but they're destructive. The, the child is destructive. The teenager is destructive. Then they get in their 20s, and they're still destructive. And then they marry someone that's destructive. Um, they think in their minds, because they're so-called no good, let's, let's put them on, on a scale of 1 to 10. They think they're a 1, and so they will only marry 1s. They won't marry, marry a two, a three, a four, or five. They won't marry up the scale. If they think they're a one on the scale of value, they will marry someone they think is on that same scale as being one. And you'll say, hey, man, uh, this, this, this gal or this guy comes from a good background, good family, this and that. Um, we would never put them in a category of a one, but they do. And then they marry a one. And you can obviously tell what's going to happen when they get married and you have that kind of problem. It usually ends in divorce. Now, let's go to the other one, the high achiever, uh, the performance-based one. The performance-based one will also look to marry a performance-based individual as well because that's all they know. And they they understand that. Um, And so you start having a, a household that is not typically suited to raise a family because both sets of people are typically so driven that children are kind of like, you know, an addendum, okay? That, that because their career, their performance is beyond everything. It's the top thing to do. So I'm not saying it, it, uh, that it's wrong to have two working people. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that type of person Marrying the same type of person becomes a very bad combination for a family unit because they will both sacrifice everything for their performance. And so you can see the family dynamics of, of that. Now let's, let's go with the other family dynamics of not understanding someone's own proclivities in the relationships, and it's the opposite things that, that starts happening, where proclivities are matching proclivities. Um, in the opposite way. So someone's proclivity who is passive has been taught passivity growing up because of the family dynamics. They will typically hang out with people that will be in charge of them. So if they grow, they, they circulate in a teenage group um, and they're passive, they'll typically surround themselves with people who will tell them what to do, a leader type individual. And then that carries on to adulthood, and then they marry, and because they're so passive, they will, will almost inevitably marry someone that will lord it over them their whole life, that will just boss them around, tell them what to do, because they're too passive. They actually don't want to lead, Okay. And so that, that there, therein lies the problem. So you'll have a, um, an Adam syndrome of, of extreme passivity, 
and then you'll have an Eve syndrome of extreme aggressiveness through the woman, or vice versa. You'll have an aggressive man versus a passive woman. And that's an imbalance, an unbalanced relationship, because you can already tell in that kind of relationship what's going to be happening. One individual will dominate the entire relationship, and the other one will lose their identity in the other person. Now, what ends up happening when that person loses their identity in the front, uh, uh, the leader? Well, what starts happening is called enmeshment. And when you have an enmeshment, that's beyond the biblical, the two shall become one. The two shall become one is patterned off the Trinity. So the Trinity is one nature, one essence, one being, one God, revealed in three identities or persons. And but those persons are 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 one, but they're yet distinct. The Father loves the Son, the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. Okay, so they're distinct. In a marriage, you form one unity in in Hebrew it's echad. Uh, 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 that's a unit. It's it's called a composite unit with Hebrew, echad, and but yet you retain the the separate identities within the echad, and that's how marriage is supposed to be. But the mistake is when the two shall become one, then they enmesh, and one of the identities is lost. And when you have enmeshment. Um, this is a serious problem in a marriage because one doesn't have any rights, one doesn't have any voice, one doesn't have any will. They just are in the shadows of the other one. Now, the problem with enmeshment sometimes happens is that um, the couple d- doesn't typically want to branch out and have other relationships with other adults, and they're quite content being content with each other and they don't have any extended friendships, families, or anything like that. And then the biggie hits. One of them dies. And if the leader dies first, the one that had no identity is lost for the rest of life unless they get therapy. That's what happens with enmeshment. Now, the thing I'm trying to point out to you is this is how Satan messes with people in their relationships. They don't understand what's happening in their relationships. So let's say you're all single, okay? And this is an experiment. They've done this. If you don't work on your proclivities and knowing what those proclivities are from your sin nature, we can make you all single again, put you at 21, and throw you in a room, because they've done this, and guess who you would gravitate to in a, in a singles mixer? What they did in the experiment, and they found this out, is that they put these people, they knew their proclivities, and funny, and these, uh, uh, put them in a room with singles they didn't know, men and women. By the end of the night, the right proclivities actually got together by the end of the night. That's how powerful it is. So Satan knows that. And Satan will play that game. And he will capitalize on our proclivities in what types of relationships we get into. And you won't see it unless you know what they are and can defend yourself against that. 
So let's say this. If you're, if you're an enabler, you should never be around someone that has addiction problems or is irresponsible. That is a bad combination for you. It will actually hurt you. Stuff like that. And so what they found in these experiments is that as they mingled and talked with one another, they could pick up the nonverbal cues and, and that, okay, that, the non, the nonverbal cues, which is 90% of communication, was picked up without the person even having to go into, in depth in their life. It was just picked up. Now this is interesting because there are men and women that are very good at reading nonverbal cues. They call it a sixth sense. It's not that. It's a, it's a, a the ability to read nonverbal cues. Women typically are better than men on nonverbal cues, but there are men that are very good about this. And so um, sometimes these men can walk into a room and sense who is available in the room. The same can go for women. The women can go into a room, look at nonverbal cues, and sense who is available in that room. It's that good. But that's what the experiment showed. That if you don't know your own stuff, you might be prey to somebody who will victimize you because they do see your proclivities and they will pounce on it. There are people like that. They're, we call them street smart. But what they really are, are they, they pick up on nonverbal cues. And so you can become a victim of these types of predators. There are predators, women and men that are predators, and they can sense where the person's at. Now, Let's bring this to, you know, your, your grandchildren and your, your, your sons and daughters who are teenagers or something like that or in college. If they're single and they don't know that there's predators out there looking for that type of individual, they will be victimized. They totally will be victimized. And these predators are really good, very good. They're top-notch, man. They know how to read women. Um, they know how to, uh, the, the women know how to read men. And their pickup lines are the best. Serious. They actually, because they read the nonverbal cues, can say exactly what the person wants to hear. Picking up on nonverbal cues. So let's say a guy comes into a bar, as, as an example. He's looking to pick up a girl. Let's say he's, he's a dominant Let's say he's uh, extremely aggressive. He can pick up nonverbal cues. So he's going to find a woman who's passive and is in need of unconditional love because the woman suffers with rejection. That woman who suffers with rejection issues puts out signals that she wants love. So that guy walks into the bar and he picks up on it right away. She's available. And she's doing it and she doesn't even know through nonverbal cues. And he will pounce on that. Now, he is a predator, but what he's looking for is a victim. And the victim and he's looking for is those who need unconditional love. So the first thing he'll say out of his mouth is he won't compliment them on their looks or anything. That's, that's too cheap. He's got to go to the heart. And he'll come with something that gets to her emotions. Hey, you look like you're lonely. Something happened? Are you okay? You see what's going on? 
He's not going to say, hey, man, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. You ought to be a model. Um, that's too stupid. That's junior high. This guy will go after the woman's emotions first. That's how you do it. That's how they figured it out. And the woman will do the same to, to the man. She will see a rejected man and she'll know how to manipulate him through his emotions of rejection. So she'll give him what he's looking for, a fake sense of love, connection, understanding, emotional connection. He's gone. She will take him down just like that. Now, why am I doing this? Because this is a major problem. And I can tell you this through counseling. A lot of the people in the 20 years I've counseled have said, Brandon, I married the wrong person. It's true. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. They will come and admit, hey, I had kids with this person. I, and they'll say, I'm not going to divorce them, I'm not, or I'm not going to divorce her. It is what it is. I know I don't have biblical grounds, but I made a huge mistake, and now I'm stuck. And so we start the process of let's, let's understand why you chose that because that will help you cope with the situation. But I'm telling you, I would say if you ask me in 20 years, what's the percentage of people that, that say they got it wrong in the mate they picked? I would say about 50%. That's the ones that admit it. That's right. And that's the ones who, who come to counseling, because not everybody's coming to counseling. So I'm only seeing a small, a small percentage, and that small percentage, I, I would say at least 50%, say, I married the wrong person. Why is it that they finally realized it later on? Why didn't they see it before? What happened? They got to know them, and then they started learning about themselves. You really start learning about yourselves. I mean, in, unless... Unless you're doing some work with a counselor or a pastor or, or therapist or whatever, uh, most people don't start learning about themselves until after their kids start getting grown. And they're not so much focused in on changing diapers and making sure they go to school, but they have some more time to be introspective about themselves and their, their spouse. And so typically you're starting to see this in the, in, the, in the teen years, the college years, and the empty nesting years. The person starts reflecting on what just happened. Because raising kids in this world is absolutely crazy and keeps you distracted from what's actually going on in the marriage. But usually later on, the person starts realizing it. And this is where, where, where you know, what the typical thing is called, what is it called, midlife crisis or something like that? They start, they start realizing this is the best I'm ever going to get, and uh, I'm stuck until I die or the Lord comes back, and please, Jesus, come back soon, they say. You know, I get it. I get it. If you, I mean, seriously, man, think about the poor people that, that are sitting there and they're like, I married the wrong person. Now think about that. And they have no biblical grounds for a divorce. What do they do? It's hard, isn't it? It's a very difficult thing. And all you can do in a counseling situation is, you know, is give them the coping skills to learn about themselves and how to cope with that from the, for the rest of their life. But it is difficult. But I want you to see this. Why does Satan do that to people? Why does he hide the truth about our relationships early on? Because then if you get married, 
he wants to destroy the family unit, okay? So he's all great with you getting married, having kids, and then the train wreck happens because you married the wrong person. He exactly wants that to happen, right? He wants that to happen. That's why you see it going on in culture. And any of you who have been through divorce, you know what I'm talking about. There's another side to that person that you married, right? A side you didn't see. An evil side, many times. A side that I, you couldn't believe it, right? Um, I've, I've, I've been in a lot of situations. I've seen the worst come out of people uh, during those periods of time. Things you would not ever expect. But it was always there. It was latent. It was hiding. And so some of that comes out later on. I don't know. I, I, I just feel it's important for you to understand your relation. Look. Look at the type of people you hung out in high school, okay? Look at the type of people you hung out when you were single. Look at the type of people you're hanging out now. Are those people edifying you or bringing you down? You see that you have to ask that question. You have to. Because if you surround, let's just say, let's say you're codependent and you don't know you're codependent. But everybody you look around that's in your life is a needy, irresponsible person. That's on you. You're surrounding yourself with needies. We got, you know, I get it. We're going to have life where we have to deal with needies. But what will needies do to you if you just surround yourself with needies? They will suck the life out of you. They will suck the dollars from you. You will give everything, and it will not end. They're like a leech, right? They just keep taking blood from you. And you keep giving and giving and giving and giving, and you never come to the end. They never get responsible. They never get their lives in order, and there is this, the cycle. Um, anyway, um, probably more than what you wanted to know, but... Um, I think it's important to understand this. Um, I think I think you're smart enough now that you guys can realize who's toxic, um, and I, I think that's that's a kind of an easy one to re, to to realize. But and sometimes those toxic people are our family, you know. And that's a, that's a di- more difficult thing to do, right? Um, but it, the ones that really get us is the ones that match our proclivities. That's what we don't see. So what's the key in this? You gotta learn your proclivities. You gotta learn what, 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 what you are set up to. What you, what, uh, what unhealthy personality are you attracted to? I know that sounds weird. I know that sounds weird. But what unhealthy relationship are you attracted to? And I'm not talking attracted in like a romantic sense or anything. I'm not talking about that. Is like, you know, if we just put you on an island, who would you spend time with, you know? is it, it Would you be attracted to an healthy person? Well, I'm attracted to irresponsibles, Brandon. Why? I'm, a, I'm attracted to someone who will lead me. If you're a guy, that's a problem. 
right? I'm attracted to somebody that's like my dad. I'm attracted to somebody that's like my mom. I've had many counseling appointments where we're dealing with the proclivities and the person will say, are you telling me that I married my mom? And I say, you sure did. Or vice versa, you married your dad. And you know what that's caused from, right? They, they didn't have their mom or dad or didn't have any uh, interactions with them, affirming them or anything like that. Whatever the situation is, it could be from divorce, it could be from death, it could be from all kinds of different aspects. But they'll actually, the person doesn't realize this um, because Satan's hiding the, the truth from them. And so they will go on a search for dad and dad's love or mom and her love. And you can't find it out there because Satan will make you think it's out there. You won't know what you're looking for, but but it it's that desire. And then you'll you will actually find somebody like your mom or dad. Now here's the thing about that. Typically, someone who's looking for mom and dad had a problem with mom and dad not being in the story. Now it's one thing if the person died. It's another thing if the person abandoned the individual or is just irresponsible and didn't raise his kids or her kids, right? So then what they will do is try to find dad. But yet, but dad was dysfunctional. So guess what kind of person they will marry? A dysfunctional person. Like dear old dad. Well, dad was an alcoholic and, you know, he couldn't keep himself straight and this and that, but I love old dad. And they will actually, they will actually, like, blank out the bad parts of their father. But when they pick somebody, they will pick somebody with the same proclivities. It's weird. It's really weird because it, it reminds them of dad. Well, dad had a drinking problem, so, you know, oh, 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 Bob over here, it's okay too, you know, because he's like dad. He's like dad. So, anyway, any questions before I move on on that stuff? I, it's, relationships are extremely important. Okay, then let's move to the next one. He will hide the truth about our desires. Now, desires could be either good or bad. It doesn't make a difference, but he can manipulate these things. And what he wants to do is pervert your good desires so that you seek these things, these good things, in a perverted way. And then the other one is he will take to satisfy a feeling. Okay? So let's start with the other one. So he takes a good desire, twists it into a bad desire. So... um, Let's say that you have a desire to be recognized as, a, as you were growing up. No one recognized you. No, no one gave you a pat on the back. No one encouraged you. No one did anything like that to you. And, uh, and so now your desire as an adult is to get recognition for the work you do. And so what will typically happen is that person will always look for a pat on the back from other people, always will, will, and how they'll do it is they will brag about what they do. They will tell you what they have, 
what money they have, what trips they go on. They will tell you what they've achieved in their life. They will brag. And what they're trying to elicit from you is, wow, you are the greatest thing since sliced bread. I can't believe you even exist. You're so perfect. That's what they want. But it comes down to a desire. Uh, it's a good desire. We all want that desire of someone saying, hey, you're doing a good job. But he twists it and then turns it to where the person won't shut up about their bragging. You ever been around someone like that? Yeah, that's what they're doing. They need to be affirmed. They have to be seen. See, those types of people, they can't do ministry behind the scenes. They can't stand that. They want people to know what they did. And they, they, they don't like ministering uh, where no one knows what they're doing. They want, they, they want actually a public platform for themselves. And you'll see this a lot of times in churches where, you know, you have some strong individuals that, that they cannot withhold themselves from be, be, uh, having a platform. And if the pastor doesn't be careful, those people will end up running his church. So at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is that's how they were treated, and they're doing everything they can to get a platform. They weren't heard type of thing. So now they want to be heard, and they want to just constantly talk. They don't listen. They just constantly talk. They tell you how great they are, how wonderful they are, all the great things they've done. Okay, so that's an example of that. Or another example could be like, I didn't get love, so I'm going to go on a hunt for love. And if they don't get love from their parents, they don't get love from their, their spouse, they will go on a hunt for love. Now, going for love is, is good. We all want to be loved. But where are you supposed to go for that? Go to God. Because he gives unconditional agape love to you. But they'll start looking for that and then try to go find it in other human beings, and they won't find it. And like I said before, what will happen is it gets perverted, and the love they seek gets turned into sex. And so sex becomes their way of interpreting love. So if people that have sexual problems, maybe they're sexual addicts, or whatever that might be, whatever, or they have serial monogamy going on all the time, what that person's lacking is they're looking for unconditional love. They didn't get it growing up, so they're now looking for it, and it's perverted into sex. That's, that's what's going on. That's what it's about. So let's go to a bad desire, the other category. So this person has illicit desires. Okay, So one, one category is good desires that are perverted. The other one has illicit desires. So Satan can take hold of that one pretty easy. Now, why would somebody have an illicit desire? Well, they're using it for comfort. They're using it for escape. They're using it for the feeling it gives them. Even though they know it's illicit, they know it's wrong, but it gives them something in return. And so Satan, as you can see, is going to completely capitalize on that one. Now, the funny thing is they'll know their desires are wrong, but they, it feels so good to do it. Now, here's the thing. They won't be able to break out of it on their own because the feeling, the escape, the pleasure, or temporary, uh, 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 you know, temporary uh, 
removing themselves from reality is so good they won't give up the escape. That's why breaking addictions are so hard. It's not that the person doesn't understand the truth. They do understand the truth. But they won't let go of the coping mechanism that they have that allows them to manage life. So if, I, if you come to them and say, we're going to strip you of your coping mechanisms, which are illicit, they freak out. Because what am I going to do when I feel this way? You're telling me I can't turn to uh, drugs, alcohol, sex, or uh, hobbies, whatever you tell. I can't do that? No, you can't. Well, they get freaked out about that because they don't know how to manage life. And so you have to teach the individual Christ's way of managing life, and there's a whole other set of, of, of doing things rather than their own way. But that kind of individual um, gets stuck. Just They get stuck, and they need help to get out of that. And a lot of times, if they don't ask for help, they will be suppressed in that sin and, and once a person starts getting suppressed in that sin, it's when the demonic starts suppressing them in the sin. And they will lack the strength to get out of it spiritually if they have demonic suppression in that area. And so that's why a third party has to come in, has to pull them out of that, so to speak, with their, uh, their strength to get them out. Or people have to surround them to pull them out of that because they won't be able to do it on their own. That's how deep sometimes people get into sin. They can't do it on their own. So um, anyway, there's where our desires are at. So the fundamental idea to, to get ahead of Satan on this is to understand your own desires. What You have to ask yourself this. Why do I do the things I do? See, most people won't ask themselves that question. So why do you serve in this ministry? Let's just throw that out there for Christians. Why do you serve in this ministry? Is it to be seen, or are you trying to help somebody? Are you trying to make a name for yourself, or are you truly like serving Christ? You see what I'm saying? Most people won't ask that question. You have to know what your desires are. Why do I pick this job for my career? Why am I doing this? Well, it's all I know. No, that's not what I asked you. I didn't ask you what you knew. I asked you, why? Why did you pick this career? Why do you think politicians pick the, the career of politicians? Yeah. Money, power, right? You see what I'm saying? But the politicians are going to ask themselves, why did I pick to be a politician? A study was done on politicians and why they picked that career. It's because in their early life, they lacked power. And so they vowed in their head subconsciously, that I'm never going to live without power. That's the key to life. And so I'm going to get into politics in order to achieve power. That's what they do. That's what they do. So you have to even ask yourself, why am I choosing this career? Now, some people will choose a career because they're lazy. Right? That's what the Bible says. Most people go through life and they're lazy. So they pick careers that allow them to be lazy. Right? doesn't require a lot of them, doesn't ask for them to think about things. It doesn't require a lot of physical movement or anything like that or to, to, to problem solve. If, if you ask an irresponsible to move into a position that are required to problem solve, 
forget it. They're not about to do that because you're taxing them too much. They're, they don't want that kind of career. And so actually people will pick careers based on their proclivities. Now let me ask you this. Are Christians accountable for the jobs they choose? Or is that just whatever you want to do, go out and do it? If you want to dig ditches the rest of your life, go ahead and do it. No problem. Are you accountable for that? Yes, you are. So what if you pick the wrong career based on your proclivity? You see what I'm talking about? It has big-time impact on the person. Well, I just don't want any responsibility, Brandon, so I'm going to pick a career I have no responsibility. Well, that means you will hit a ceiling in your career. You're not going to make very much money. Well, that's okay because I don't want to be responsible. Okay, so don't expect to get past this ceiling if you don't want to go past that. So when they cry a sob story to you, well, I ain't rich like the other people are, you know, best God, I don't have any money and this and that. And they give, they give you the humble, the fake hum- humility that they don't make a lot of money. That's not really what's going on. They don't want to work hard. That's their problem. And have you ever seen these people that go from job to job to job to job to job to job? I mean, seriously, man, they'll hold three jobs in a year. The next year they have three more jobs. The next year they have three more jobs, and they just keep going on and on and on. And it's always management's problem, isn't it? It's always management. They didn't like me. The guy, the guy was anti-Christian. It wasn't, it wasn't your Christianity. In fact, you were, you're giving us all a black eye because you were lazy. That's your problem. And I've talked to many employers, and they say, Brandon, you, you won't believe this, but most of the Christians are lazy that work for us. And they spiritualize it. That, that's, that's what employ, employers say to me. They don't know how to work hard. And, when, 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 and what does the Scripture say about working hard? With every hand finds a do, do with all your might, and work as unto the Lord. You sh- the, the Christian worker should be the hardest worker that employer ever has. Not some lazy bum that gives everybody a black eye because they don't work hard. But I'm telling you, that's been the sentiment I've heard even in Kern County. And I don't know what, what, what's... I'm, you, you, you know there's a lot of crazy Christians out there that claim to be Christian, but they're not. But, um, but you know, therein lies the problem with wrong desires. They have a desire to be lazy, so they find jobs that are lazy. Um, and then you find other people that are, are, are performance-oriented, high producers, and they won't stop. They'll, they're, they're the workaholics of life. They're the ones that, that have to have um, numerous titles behind their name and achievements here and achievements there. They gotta go to this dinner and they gotta go to that dinner and be seen here and be there. And it's like, dude, you have a desire for affirmation and it's what's driving your career. So anyway, I put that out there because this is how Satan deceives us. And think about this. People will be deceived in these areas their entire life if they don't figure it out. They will spend their whole life in a career that they actually weren't meant to be in. That's scary. That's, I don't want to be that kind of person where I, I get to the end of my life and I worked in a career for 40 or 50 years and all of a sudden the, uh, at the Bema seat he says, you chose that career because you were lazy. 
you were supposed to be doing this, and you knew you were supposed to be doing this, and you didn't do it. Now, in my world, in the ministry world, I see this all the time. Let me show you how I see it. I see people that were called to ministry that refuse to answer the call, and they're the most bitter, angry individuals, and they're jealous of those who are in ministry. Because they chose a different career rather than following the call of God. And it's too late. It's too late. You should have answered that call when you're in your 20s. You don't answer that call when you're 70 years old and having regrets about it. And I've dealt with these people. They're bitter. They're angry. They're jealous. They're envious. And I've talked to them. And I said, why didn't you take the call? Do you know why they didn't take the call? You want to know the little secret, the little dirty secret of why they didn't accept the call in the ministry? Money. I couldn't make as much as I wanted to make. Thank you. That's all I needed to know. So you decided to make a decision based on money rather than what God was calling you to do? <laughs> That's between you and him. You're going to have to answer for that one. Or then you have people that get in the ministry that shouldn't be in the ministry. They should be selling insurance. <laughs> and they're called the insurance and, and their mama called Papa Sent. Plenty of those people. Mama called Papa Sent. They did something for the wrong desire. Pleasing dad, pleasing mom, pleasing the family. Well, we've had 12 generations of pastors, so you must be a pastor too. No, what if God called them to whatever, ditch digging? Something else. What it, what it, you know, oh, no, no, square peg in a round hole. We'll make it work. Mama called Papa Sent is the way you call them. Okay. All right, my question is, uh, is it possible to have a job that... Um, it, Let's say it produces income, but it's it's more of a, a easygoing job. You have to think about what you do, but you make money and you don't have to do a whole, lo a whole lot of hard labor. Is it possible to have a job like that that produces income, but have your main um, agenda, your main um, career in life, being in the ministry? Something yeah. that doesn't make much, but it's that's yeah. your main fulfillment. Yeah, that's bivocational pastors are like that, right? You're using it as a tool, basically, to get to the yeah that, and that's fine. That that's they're doing it for being able to do ministry, right? That's why they do that. So they, they have, there's tons of bivocational pastors who do that. That's perfect. Because what's, they know they're called, but you know maybe the church they work at can't support them and stuff like that. So yeah, that's totally legit, man. Totally legit. Uh, okay, any questions on this? Clear as mud, right? Okay, let's go to the next one. Then... Um, uh, we have another aspect of Satan is that, um, this is number five, the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, he's called. Um, this is a title for Satan, but um, Ephesians 2 points this title out, but what does this emphasize, this title? This title emphasizes his work among unbelievers, okay? So this is what we can never forget, that when you see these crazy people in our world do the things they do, like AOC, um, you know, Biden, Kamala, Pelosi, Gavin Newsom, all these crazies, Kim Jong, uh, Chi, uh, all these other people, Putin, um, understand that behind them is demonic forces using them. I have never seen so much demonic activity that I've ever seen in people. You can see it in their face. Um, when you look at Kamala Harris, when I look at Joe Biden, when I look at 
all these people, and I'm not trying to, do, I'm not trying to even be inflammatory or hi, uh, using hyperbole. I'm seeing a weird wickedness spirit behind them when I see them. There's something wrong with them. They're not human. No, they are human, but something's, something's fueling this. Um, when I look at Bill Gates, I, I just see demonic activity all around him. Do you see that? You, does that make sense? And when you, there's, and that's your that's your discernment saying, "Hey, man, there's something wrong with that guy or that gal." Okay, so what you realize is that behind them, why you sense that is the fact that that the spirit of of Satan is working in the sons of disobedience. He is what's causing them to do what they do and think how they think. Now, think about this. They have no protection whatsoever from Satan. None. You and I have all this protection, the armor of God, the Holy Spirit, the new nature, the protection from the Messiah by his authority. We have all kinds of protection. They don't. They're completely naked in front of him. And so this is why he, he, he gets them and messes them up so bad. So one of the things to think about when you're dealing with people, even on a one-on-one basis, in your family, at work, or wherever, please try to see the bigger picture. So some people get caught up in, in the person. Maybe they have a, a bad guy at work that they're messing with. And uh, what's, what Satan wants you to do is to get so focused on him that you will actually hate the person and try to seek revenge on the person but what you have to do to stop yourself is take a step back and realize, wait a second, this guy's a pawn. This guy's a useful idiot. Something is using him. And what you need to see in spiritual warfare is what's behind it. You have to see the bigger picture. And seeing the bigger picture actually gives you the ability to give grace to the individual and mercy to the individual, and the person's more to be pitied sometimes than scolded. If you can see the bigger picture of what's going on. These people that you're dealing with, family members, friends, neighbors, people at work, that, that seem to have lost their minds, they're being controlled. They're being controlled to think that way. And so you, that should lessen your anger lessen your resentment so that you can see something else that's going on. And the other thing it will help you do, and I'd say this to a lot of people, you have to see what's behind the person in order to depersonalize it. Otherwise, you'll think it's a human-to-human basis. This person has it out for me. They're coming against me, and they're in my face, and they're in my dish, and I don't like them. And you think it's that, but no. What's happening is the person's being inspired by a demonic to come against you. For what? To hinder you in your ministry, to hinder you in your family, to hinder you at your job. So if you step back and depersonalize and say, wait, there's demonic activity happening about this. This ain't about me. This is about trying to stop me from serving the Lord. This is trying to stop me from being a witness from the Lord. And so that calms you down to realize, wait a second. See, the key is depersonalizing the attacks. Now, Christ tried to help you out and help me out by saying this. They hated me. They will hate you. What did he do there? He totally depersonalized the whole thing. The reason they hate you is because of me. 
So what is that supposed to do? That, that causes me the ability to turn the other cheek on insults. It causes me not to retaliate. causes me not to seek revenge. All the bad things that God doesn't want you to do. I'm not talking about defending yourself. Please understand that. I'm not talking about defending. I'm talking about when someone's verbally attacking you and going after you, saying you're this, saying you're that, all this other junk. Um, the key is depersonalizing it. Satan, in all the stuff that you have went through in your life, all the bad stuff, okay? I want you to think about that. All the nonsense that you had to put up with. You were probably like me, and like every human being, the first thing we do when bad stuff starts happening to us is we personalize it. So if your parents had trouble when you were growing up, bad relationship, divorce, whatever it might be, the child will tend to personalize. Well, it's the, the, I'm not valuable enough for them to stay together. Um, I must have done something to make them mad, and that's why dad left, or that's why mom left. And you start personalizing things. And what did that situation have to do with you? It didn't have anything to do with you. You had two knuckleheads raising you that couldn't get their act together. It had nothing to do with you. But see, we, we want to personalize it because in our minds as a child, our parents could do no wrong. So if mom and dad can't do any wrong, I guess it's got to be me. And it gives all these kids a bunch of hang-ups. And then you become an adult and you have these hang-ups. And so at the end of the day, if you can get to a place where you can depersonalize people attacking you and see the bigger picture, it helps you in managing the attacks. So think through that. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's a satanic technique that it gets people to get fired up on um, when people, you know, attack you. Let's just say, let, let me give an example. Let's just say your spouse has a hard day at work, had a real bad day, and they come in and they're going to kick the dog, so to speak, right? And they're all fired up. If you personalize that, you're discounting the reality of the truth is that what happened at work is what's causing the problem. He just came and kicked the dog. But it has nothing to do with you. But if, you, if, you're, if you're that emotionally fragile that you personalize everything, you're going to live on a nightmare. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.